0: Alchemy is a seemingly magical process of transformation, creation, or combination. Beyond Alchemy is more than that. It's about discovery. It's about the experience. It is about the order and chaos that brought us here. Beyond Alchemy is Making Sense's podcast, in which greater speakers tell extraordinary stories of the technology world. This podcast goes from the conception of the idea to the exit. In each stage of this journey, we have the right person to answer the questions you may be asking yourself. There is no software without experience, and we build software people love with unique stories behind. Are you ready to bring your business to the next level?
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Alchemy. Today, we're getting to the end line of this journey. We're going to be talking about the M&A process. In order to do that, we have as a guest, Lindsay Wendler. She is a managing director at Dresden Partners Investment Banking. She leads sell-side transactions for companies in a wide range of sectors for focus on businesses in the outsourced human capital management space, such as staffing, payroll services, and software companies. In addition to consumer product companies, Lindsay is president of the DFW chapter of the Alliance of M&A Advisors, member of the National Board of the Alliance of M&A Advisors, and it's on the board of the DFW chapter of the Association of Corporate Growth, most commonly known as ACG. Lindsay was recently named one of the top 25 women in M&A by Optus Connect. Without further ado, let's get into it, Lindsay. Welcome to the episode.
2: Hi, Mariano. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's a it's a pleasure for us. So for the audience, uh, Lindsay and I, uh, we got to know each other by one of our fellows at ACG here in the DFW area. We got connected, and and yeah, I'm 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 very excited, very excited about this episode. Before we get started, Lindsay, top twenty five woman in M and A by Optus Connect. That that sounds amazing. Congrats on that. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that, and you know who you are and what you do?
2: Absolutely. I mean, first of all, there's not a lot of us, Um, but uh, no, it is an honor to to have been named one of the top 25. Um, But I would say like on the sell side, on the investment banker side, there are there are really not a lot of women in the middle market. And I really encourage young women that are going into finance to really consider it, because I think. A lot of the skill sets that women have are very useful. Um, Kind of our natural skill sets are very useful in the middle market when you're dealing with family and founder-owned companies. Definitely staying really busy, and I'm involved in a lot of organizations, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, I I, I love what I do.
1: Great, Lizzie. Well, so you, you know what we're doing here. We are at the end of this journey where we basically have walked through our audience through pretty much the whole journey from the conception of the idea. On our last episode, we talk about... You know how to get ready for, for exiting a company, right? And we have you here to walk us through. You know this. You know well known for somebody. I'm I'm maybe not that well known for, for pre- most of people, including myself. You know, so we want to get into the details of the M&A process. And I think a good way to kick this off is: How does the M&A structure look like? How does an M&A process structure? looks like for you
2: yeah so i mean a lot of business owners they hear about companies selling and there isn't really like the full picture that's involved with that so you know we really try to help first of all educate business owners about what that would look like and i mean there's a lot of things that kind of piggyback onto that but just a a regular structured process m&a process where you're running an auction and you're really looking for the highest best fitting bids is around you know, textbook six months. It's rarely six months. It's usually more like nine to twelve, but textbook is six months, and it's kind of carved into like four and a half areas. Um, so you've got your preparation. That's when my team is getting all of the documents that we need to really put together a robust robust profile. And then there's the marketing phase where we're going out to all of the buyers that we've selected. There's several types of buyers that exist out there. So depending on the goals of the company, we will decide which channels to go after. And then once we have taken those buyers through, um, kind of vetted them, seen which ones are interested, we'll collect indications of interest, which help us know, you know, if we're, we're in the same ballpark, then we invite, firms to meet with management and then we set a date where they need to submit a letter of intent and that's where we choose one to move forward with under exclusivity and um, we allow them to do a certain amount of diligence on the company with a closing date in mind then you get into the diligence Piece, which is um, the least fun for everyone, and that's when the buyers are doing, you know, their accounting diligence, legal diligence. This is usually when deals blow up a few times, and um, hopefully <laughs> they come back together. And then there's, you know, final negotiations based on the findings of diligence, um, or if like a company overperforms, there's also negotiations um, the other direction, and uh, finally closing, hopefully.
1: So what is your role on this? So for the audience, are you like helping and and walking the companies through this? It's more like a moderator role. So uh, how is the role of investment banker on, on this process?
2: So your investment banker is really like your representative that's quarterbacking the whole process. So we will usually be the ones bringing in outside parties. For example, we like to have our clients do a sell-side quality of earnings report it's sort of like an audit but it's really an audit on your earnings which is what buyers are really looking at so that it makes our argument extremely defensible going into a negotiation because the buyer will do the same analysis on their side and it's helpful if we've already done it so we we help guide our clients not every firm requires that or pushes that Uh, more and more are doing that but things like that and then when um the lawyers are involved. We try to save our clients' time by, you know, instead of them talking to every single professional all the time, we are usually the ones doing that, and then kind of giving them the sound bites that are needed, setting up the meetings that are important for them, and giving them the information they need to make good decisions along the road.
1: Okay, so that sounds like a very important role for me, especially if I'm trying to exit a company. Uh, I will try to be your best friend, probably.
2: I mean, honestly, that's a really good point. I mean, it is a very trust. And um, I mean, it's not something that comes up a lot in picking your investment banker, but it probably should be.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds like it's going to be someone that is rooting for me throughout the process. So yeah, definitely I want want to be on my side and kind of solid relation on trust, you know, for the most part. So Lindsay, this this is a very long process at least six months is, is a lot for someone that is trying to exit the company. Uh, I guess that there is a lot of emotion, feelings going around, uh, especially on the on the seller side. But let's start from your perspective. Right, you, You've been there on that for a long time. So from your perspective, what is that thing that nobody tells you about the MA process?
2: I mean, I think you kind of nailed it. It's um, people don't tell you how emotional, how stressful the process is on sellers. It's one thing if it's a management team that's doing the process on behalf of a corporation. It's another very different thing if it is a family or founders that are going through the process um, for the first time. It's, you know, your, your business, a privately owned business is typically ties up most of your net worth for these types of owners. And you know, could anyone blame them for for feeling emotional as other people are valuing it? Other people are telling them, you know, how it's how it's going to work. You know, it can be very, very good for them um, if they have the right guidance and they choose the right buyers moving forward, depending on what their goals are. You know, a lot of our com- a lot of middle market companies will sell to a private equity firm that is going to really put resources, really pour gasoline on the company so it can grow. And um, the sellers typically roll a certain amount of equity so they can participate in that growth and everyone's interests are aligned. So picking a group that has a great track record and you trust is is really important. But along that road, it's easy to get offended. It's easy, it's, mm-hmm. it's incredibly stressful. I always tell my clients like, you will have a nervous breakdown. It looks different to different people. <laughs> But like when you really, when your blood starts boiling and you wanna make like a big decision, remember I'm saying this and just don't, just take a a breath, take a day off. Like, you know, we can always come back to this tomorrow, but like, let's make sure that we keep um, the goal, the end goal in mind uh, and not get derailed.
1: On our previous episode, we have uh, Julie Keys. She's an exit planner uh, talking about the importance of the role before going into an M process, and, and this completely match what you're saying because I, I guess that that helps to reduce that friction. I think probably is going to be there still, but it helps you know get business owners to get better prepared for facing these type of situations that you're talking about, and you know talking about struggle and you know adversity. From your perspective, what are the problems that you will definitely face on any M and A process?
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh, where do you start? Like it really is. um, (laughs) uh, Every deal brings things up that I just never thought I would ever have to deal with, and so there's a lot of things that are predictable that we try to prevent up front. You know, that's why we do a lot of work up front so that you know when we find the right buyer it works and no one's second guessing anything, but, um, you know, I'd say the most common problems are really related to books and records. So a lot of middle market companies, even quite large ones, they still have a bookkeeper on QuickBooks and, uh, that's fine for certain types of companies prior to a transaction. Uh, but it's, if you're in, for example, construction or any kind of business that has, complexity with a backlog and work in progress, um, billing, its it can make the numbers um, under scrutiny look different. And so that's typically where we're running into issues.
1: Following this line, and then we're, we're going to get to the most exciting and positive part of it. Well, let, let's address the ugly part first. What are, what are the main misconceptions, if you will, or the most common misconceptions on the M&A process from your perspective?
2: Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I have had a lot of sellers be really afraid of private equity because they hear that they fire everyone and then they destroy the business and the end. And that's just that's just not true, because if it were, there wouldn't be a trillion dollars in dry powder right now sitting in U.S. private equity funds raised and unspent. And these are often funds that are on their fourth fifth sixth fund so they've they've returned um, a lot of money to their investors and to the owners that have stayed in and grown the business with them so a lot of times i think what is really helpful for them is once we're in the process uh and if the the goal is for the seller is really a goal that aligns with a private equity type of buyer We would then ask that private equity group to provide several names of CEOs that they've worked with that, you know, whose companies they bought, that our seller can speak with them and understand more what that relationship was like when times were good and when times were not so good. We feel like those interviews are really helpful for the seller to understand. Well, I mean, even like what does the day to day look like? It's hard to imagine unless someone who's been there can tell you.
1: So yeah, Linz, you know, I, I think that that, that makes sense and, and also from our experience I guess that keeping the know-how of the business which is, you know, people that comes with the company, right? Someone told told me one time that you're not acquiring a business, you're you're acquiring people, right? And you know, it it's it's very important to keep that knowledge and you know, people that been running the business for the last 10, 15, 20 years. That that's our experience to for with, you know, or work with private equity that they always try to keep that knowledge in house as much as possible and leverage that knowledge as much as they can because that's gonna be helping them to reduce risk and improve, you know, whatever business to get to the next exit and include you know multiple increment the multipliers moving forward. So don't be scared is, is pretty much the message, right?
2: No, I mean you shouldn't be afraid. It. Exit channels are a whole different discussion. But if a seller's goals are really most aligned with a private equity type of buyer, it's really about the chemistry, because private equity is not in the business of losing money. You want to be aligned. Um, you bo- you all have skin in the game. And then you want to choose, assuming you have the choice and you're going to stay in this business as a seller, you want to choose a group that you trust, that you like, you know, you want to have dinner with occasionally. And, um, and then going back to, you know, being able to get references of other founders that, they've worked with um and understanding what that relationship was like over those years i think that that is a better way for sellers to look at it and and really get the most value out of their transaction
1: all right i have two more questions for you on this on this portion of the podcast Uh, so the first one it's going to be what makes a business valuable? What well, what makes a business more valuable than others? And and then the the last one to close this this section will be what's the mindset that you will encourage uh, business owners to have getting into this this process?
2: Yeah. So um, I think I sent you an infographic. I have a little cartoon in my mind that I think of when people are going to make a referral to a business owner, or when I'm first speaking with a business owner, I'll, I'll ask them a series of things that help me kind of understand if this is something that we should really take forward or if this is something where we could still have a conversation and i can help point them in directions to where maybe they can pick up some of those value drivers so for example customer concentration and vendor concentration um of course depending on the industry you're in that can mean a lot of things but generally like if you're a widget maker and you have you know over 20 percent customer concentration. That starts to raise a flag. It doesn't mean you can't transact, but it definitely it affects valuation to a certain extent. You also want to show steady year-on-year growth. If you've been growing and then there's been a plateau or you know a decline and then a plateau, that's really hard to sell, just period. It's hard to sell that. It can be sold, but if you're looking for a premium valuation, that's unless there's another circumstance or some other detail that's part of the transaction, that's just hard to do. You want to have a strong management team. And kind of on that same note, if you are a family founder-owned business, you want to have the business not completely dependent on you. So basically, if you get $40 million and right off into the sunset, and you're supposed to be helping the buyer, you know, you still have 20% of the shares of the new company, the buyer wants to know that the business can operate without you or that the management team that's staying really wants to stay. And they often incentivize them to stay, but they've got to have the capability to do it. And that's where that, that succession planning is really important. A business that's looking to transact, it's it's helpful if they've had um, a conversation about that or if they've gotten guidance on that. You also, today, this is kind of hard to predict because technology is moving so fast, but you businesses that are more resistant to technology changes are, that is a really important aspect of a business. Like, for example, if you were a business that was, um, converting VHS videos to, um, to CDs, I saw this a few years ago. That shift has kind of sailed. I, you know, I guess you can put them online, but you, you just want to. Um, I mean, and, and as a business owner, I think you want to be aware of those technological shifts so you're not getting left behind. Also, regulatory issues uh, in in some industries just inherently have those. Like anything that's in healthcare that has reimbursement has reimbursement risk changes, uh, changes changes to the reimbursement that are seen as risk by by buyers. And there's plenty of other sectors that do have some regulatory issues. So a a business that has a history of managing those well, will fare well in a transaction. And then you've got my favorite word, EBITDA. (laughs) So um, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization, that is the metric that all buyers want to know and love. And um, it's interesting with privately owned businesses, there's different thresholds of EBITDA size that open up the buyer universe. So 2 million EBITDA, that opens a certain universe of buyers. Once you get to five, that opens a much larger set of buyers once you get to 10 that you know you really have a large part of middle market private equity that will look at that deal assuming you know it's in the right Mm -hmm. industries that they like etc but um, and then from there those private equity firms um, assuming you sell to them they're really looking to take that 10 million EBITDA company or you know maybe slightly less than that and grow it to 30 40 50 million of EBITDA and the margin on that is also important. You know, over 10% EBITDA margins, companies have a much wider buyer universe than say a single, a single digit EBITDA margin. You know, it's important whatever business you're in, if you can know the kind of industry norm and see where you fall on that. I think if, as long as you're in the kind of the, the middle, that's good. If you can be at the top of the range, even better. And then the last few things I'll mention are recurring revenue. Buyers wanna know that the revenue is still coming in. You're not having to fight for every dollar. Identifiable growth opportunities. They wanna know you haven't saturated the entire market. And then back to the having good, good books and records. Most privately owned companies, even large ones are not audited that's where that quality of earnings report comes in really handy. But if you are able to do audited financials, I mean, if you're planning on selling in three three years, do it now. Like, spend the money and do it. It'll pay off. And now the last thing I'll say is ESG. So low, the lower middle market... It's not really a huge issue, but it is something that comes up in every transaction. Um, When I talk to my friends in private equity, they say they talk about it in every single investment committee meeting. And it's definitely important when they exit the companies that they invest in. There's now diligence um, coming in on ESG issues within businesses. But that's kind of the full picture of what I think about and look at when I'm meeting with a company for the first time.
1: Good. Well, that's a lot that's a lot that in, goes into what makes a business valuable so um, in case some someone in the audience have any question we're going to going to post your contact information uh, and if you have you know any business that you're trying to exit maybe you know Lindsay can help you get there and i'd be happy <laughs> Yeah, for sure, we'll uh, drop your contact information. And I know that there is a lot to cover on, on this short period of time, but I, I think you did a great job, Lindsay. So thank you for doing that. And, and let's, let's, let's do this like a rapid fire in terms of the mindset. Like couple, couple of qual- qualities that you think that right mindset should have.
2: For the mindset? Yes. Yeah, I think um, being certain about your goals at the beginning of a transaction, writing them down, and when you are feeling emotional or when you're feeling triggered by some conversation with a buyer, to go back to that goal and make sure that you are not getting sidetracked. Good. That's the number one thing I think. Um, I also think stamina. Like it is not an easy process, and like as we discussed earlier, it's not short either. It's long. It's tedious. <laughs> It's, we're gonna ask you for things that you've never thought to have to show anyone. There's a lot of things that are like, you know, people don't love showing their financials to people. They don't love answering questions about maybe difficult personnel or, you know, there's just there's just things that are, and, and this is like a an open, everything open, transparent, dig into your life and uh and your business, which is you know often very tied to um to the identity of the of the seller, and rightly so, so I think the stamina to get through it, and I think the understanding i I, I don't hear people talk about that enough. And I think, you know, you hear these statistics about how many deals actually close and it's hard to know what's really real because for example, my firm won't really take on a deal unless there's a really high level of certainty we can get it done. And I mean, it has to go through a lot of people at my firm to be able to get signed up. But, you know, I, I think it's really important to educate sellers about what it might take to get it done. Like not, not just like the time and the energy But, you know, the effect that has on you, your family, um, you just need to be ready.
1: Okay. Ready and patient. That's good. Good to know. Great insight. We're going to, before we get into the second portion of the episode, we're going to hear a quick public service announcement and then we'll be right back.
0: Making Sense bridges the gap between impossible and possible with great code and design. In Making Sense, we build software people love.
1: Yeah, so, Lindsay, for this second portion of the episode, we are living some crazy times, if you will. Uh, definitely very different from what we've been used to for the past couple of years, like 2020, 2021, where, you know, borrowing money was, was cheaper. Everyone was doing deals. Uh, valuations were through the roof uh, of the charts completely. So I-, I would like you to you know give your perspective in terms of you know the, the existing macroeconomics how that's been affecting the M&A space how it's that affecting you know full exits versus partial exits I mean just give your thoughts uh, on that please
2: yeah um it's interesting times right like um I'm, I've heard across the board and I just came back from probably the largest M&A conference that takes place during the year it was in Las Vegas it's the ACG deal max conference. And I've heard across the board from other investment bankers, private equity, the service providers that MA has slowed, but it's still, you know, it's still busy. And I think a lot of that is the fact that the private markets have so much capital, both in private equity and in private credit. So, um, you know, I think the raise in interest rates, the rise in interest rates has had Obviously, a very big impact on on everything. But in deals, you know, that affects the IRRs for funds, depending, you know, and for that matter, their valuations. You know, with deals that I do on the sell side, it's not really my job to find the debt financing for the buyer. But I often do run the deal by it, you know, a handful of my favorite lenders to see if they would be interested and in sort of what they would, what kind of debt they would put on the, the company. And I've had a couple where, I mean, it was like crickets chirping. On the other hand, the, the private credit funds, they're thriving in this environment because to get the returns they needed before, they had to do much more risky deals. And now there's these pretty great credits that are available that the bank banks are not really interested in doing, or if they even are interested in doing, are probably priced similarly to them. So... Um, those are some interesting dynamics. I mean, you'll also see that there's like hardly been any IPOs in the last year. But 2021, there were a couple things happening. There was everyone expected capital gains tax increases to double, like the, the increase to be, you know, a doubling effect. So we had a lot of sellers rushing in Q1 to sign up and get out before the end of that year. That didn't end up happening, but you also had all this free money and um, people were spending. And and um, last year, it was a weird year. I mean, in January, like money was free and like things were good. But you know, by the end of Q1, I think it was there was a war in Ukraine. There, you know, we started the market started to fall. Um, We started talking about raising interest rates and the fact that this, that inflation was not in fact transitory. Um, And I think around summertime was the first time we started hearing the word recession. I mean, that was just so far from anyone's mind the year prior. So um, going into the fall, I think, you know, sellers that had started to prep at the beginning of last year, you know, I think their expectations had to be adjusted for the, actual valuations that came through at the end of the year. And I'd say, generally speaking, I mean, there's still premium transactions that are getting done at, you know, the same, if not higher multiples than before. But let's take a more like average case. I think you're seeing about a turn to a turn and a half of EBITDA lower in valuations. And this is just my personal experience or, or you know, what I've talked about with folks in my firm. And that's really related to the amount of debt you can put on a company I mean, you just can't get three and a half, four turns of of debt. You just, I mean, for a, you know, maybe an asset like company, um, that's just not how it is anymore. You know, I think the biggest shift has been is really for sellers and their expectations. I mean, the valuations are still what we would consider very healthy, but they're not, um, mm-hmm. they're not frothy like they were a right. year or two ago. And, you know, <laughs> hey, like that's.
1: That's timing. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was on that uh, event. I, I mean, it used to be called different. Right? It used to be called Inner Growth before it It was called DealMax. Yes. And I was there on 2022, I think it was. It was, again, first first queue last year. And yeah, it was exactly... I mean, everyone was crazy just looking for deals. There was a lot of movement down there. And yeah, things shift rapidly last year, which wasn't expected. At least it wasn't expected for me, at least, uh, for sure. But Lindsay, in this, you know crazy times that you are describing with that there is a lot of things going on. So from your perspective, is there any industries that you think, you know, got some favorable, let's say a tailwind, if you will, with this situation or were benefit out of it?
2: Definitely seeing really nice, steady deal flow and valuations in healthcare, and, you know, our firm has, does a lot in the fertility clinic space and more and more in, in cosmetic surgery. And I think that has to do, cosmetic surgery slash med spa, I think that has to a lot to do with the fact that for a lot of people, healthcare, even outside of those two kind of areas, healthcare is not like a, not something you're going to give up. And um, with more and more of the technology for med spas and cosmetic surgery becoming affordable for you know, middle class, upper middle class people, um, that was previously only available to, you know, celebrities. I think, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of tailwinds in that environment. More largely speaking, I've been working in outsourced human capital management. I think you'll continue to see uh, outsource services. I think you'll continue to see businesses outsource, um, functions that are not there key area of business and I think that includes like the human capital that goes with it so you know being able to ramp up and ramp down from projects I think companies that really own the skilled labor that's able to do that will thrive but uh areas where um you like where you almost have to like run or, or where where buyers are running from um are um like the word construction is so scary to private equity right now. Um, <laughs> like if a deal even has just like the word construction in it, it's um, they won't even like listen to the rest of the story. Um in a lot of cases, the other would be like home building, anything that's, you know, they love residential services. I think those are still doing quite well because, you know, even if you're not able to move, you're still going to need to service your like HVAC. Like, are you even a private equity firm if you don't own an HVAC company? Like, that has been one of the hottest companies to be, company types to be traded over the last few years. Um, and that's kind of moved into roofing. I've, I've seen a lot of roofing transactions and, uh, I think firms see those, those kinds of companies as just being essential, whether there's new homes being built or not. But, um, but if you're more on the home building side, that's a little, that's a little rough right now. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but if you are a premium company that's growing, and I've seen this with my clients who are, you know, there's no need for them to sell at a discount. We've, our advice has been, if you don't need to sell, just, just wait you know, because mm-hmm. the only thing that we know for certain is that things are going to change.
1: Yeah. Hopefully. Soon. <laughs> Sooner rather than yeah. later, please.
2: <laughs> I mean, I would hope so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, Lissy. so getting get into the last portion of the, of the episode, uh, let's talk a little bit about the future of MA. and And, you know, there is a lot going on, and there is this thing that it's been there for a while, but I think recently it's been you know, widely spread and very popular, which is, you know, AI, which LGBT, everyone is talking about that, which AI is, is way broader than that. But, you know, now let's say that that portion of the AI world has, been, has, has become accessible to pretty much everyone. So what's your take in terms of, you know, how new technologies, AI, or, or whatever technology you can think of, it's going to impact the M&A world and how transactions are done right now?
2: So AI, I mean... I have loved some of the tools that have become available like ChatGPT which can really help with um, putting together sims and you know more quickly putting together copy that you can then edit and customize more for what you're trying to do. Also like I love the Canva editor that can kind of put together a template presentation for you so I think there's a lot of ways that I'm speaking more from like a middle market perspective, so that Mm -hmm. middle market managers can leverage this technology to um, increase productivity. And I think we've kind of been one of the industries that has lacked a technological transformation. But uh, I will say what we do, and we've touched on this, is we guide clients through very unique, difficult situations that are one about educating and, and providing guidance on, you know, uh, on very technical, you know, financial issues, but also on the emotional side, helping them guide through what's normal, what's not normal, what's a good partner, uh, what's a good buyer, etc. And I'm not, I won't be one to say that AI will never be able to do that, but I think because of the confidential nature of the way businesses are sold. I don't think AI will displace the investment banker for a long time. And and I don't think they're going to be displacing buyers. I think it's going to help us make our processes much more efficient. And we're kind of seeing that. I'm I'm hearing from lawyers that they're using. They're using it for some of their documents. I've demoed a couple companies that have... um, that have an AI related component that helps you source the right buyers for particular industries mm-hmm. and you know prospects. So I, I think it's I think for now these are really helpful tools. I see them just kind of like augmenting our our current capability.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I I think I, I will definitely agree with you. Uh, and the main reason why it's because you know these AI tools they still, maybe, maybe this will change soon, but they still don't have the common sense that humans have, gut feelings, you know, emotions, things like that, uh, that I think are key. I mean, we'll be talking that this is a very emotional process, right? And and you mentioned that many people on your firm needs to review a transaction or, or deal before you actually uh, you actually start working on it. So I guess it's, it's again, it's a lot of gut feeling, experience, common sense that goes into it. So... So yeah, I definitely, I definitely will agree with you probably will expedite and, you know, do things more streamlined, but it's not gonna, I I don't think it's gonna replace it anytime soon. So any, any closing thoughts for this episode, Lindsay?
2: I think if business owners were watching this, I think the biggest thing to take away are really um, value drivers and just thinking You know, you can you can call me, or you can call um, your CFO, or and and start talking about some of these issues and. Kind of grade yourself and and see like what do you need to do to make those better? Is it like putting a new ERP system in? Is it uh, making sure you're tracking things better? Is it boosting your management team, making sure you have a succession plan? It's different for every business, but I think really looking at your business at you know if you're considering a sale or raising capital at any point in the future and meaning you're going to bring investors in you want to start thinking about these different value drivers from their perspective, I think earlier rather than later. And that's, those are the value drivers. And then the second thing I'd say is, um, if they do decide to go down that one of those roads is knowing that, you know, nothing, nothing is easy about it and making sure that you choose an advisor who you really can count on and, um, and, and really understands what it takes to get, a deal done, whether it's one of the lucky ones that gets done really easily, or if it's one of the more normal ones that, you know, kind of <laughs> takes a little bit of, um, a little bit of hard, not a little bit, a lot of hard work. I will say a
1: lot. that. Good. Good. Well, well, we'll definitely, again, post your contact information so, you know, people can reach out if they have any question or if they are thinking on, you know, getting into this journey, um, which seems like they will need your help for sure. I
2: wouldn't scare them off.
1: Yeah. yeah I'm sure I'm sure you will I'm sure you definitely will you will help them a lot uh well Lindsay thank you so much this has been great uh we really appreciate your time and your knowledge and thank you for sharing it with your audience
2: thank you for having me I appreciate it
1: so we have come to an end of this series we hope this was insightful for you and helpful if you are on any part of this journey that we just walk you through We want to thank all the guests for joining us on this journey and sharing their knowledge. It was a truly pleasure for us, and we hope they enjoyed as much as we did. So what's next? We'll see, but we hope to see you in the next one. Stay tuned. Bye.